welcome to the podcast. So this time we have a very deep and intellectual conversation that Adam and I enjoyed with Andrew Rankin. Andrew works in higher education, has done for a long time, focuses on the area of sport, but also has a very diverse career background and has done quite a lot of work within the golf industry as well, both as an advisor and sitting on boards. So it's a really interesting conversation. Adam, what was your key takeaways? This is one you need to go into with with a bit of an open mind. It might challenge some of your, your current beliefs, but it's really one that you're going to be able to look at the golf industry and just the general game of golf through a different lens, for a different perspective and different paradigms. So a really interesting conversation. Yeah, pour yourself a coffee, sit back and enjoy. Hello, Andrew, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, Colin. Good morning. I've got Adam with me today. Hi, Adam. How are you doing? Yes, very well, thanks. So today we have a very interesting conversation. I I'm going to start, though, by admitting that when I got my first business card given to me in a role in the golf industry a few years back, it was quite a proud moment because my personal understanding of a business card for my father up until that point was that you had to have more than 12 letters after your name in order to get presented with one of these little cards. And um, I always then went around and people say, what did your dad do? And I said, well, he's got 12 letters after his name. He's done all these degrees and everything. So when, when I was um, doing some background research on today's guest and I saw all the, the things that you've been involved in from an academic perspective and a golf perspective and across other sports, I don't want to ask how many letters you have after your name, Andrew, but I'm guessing there's probably quite a few. <laughs> Would that be correct? One or two. Yes. There's one or two. Yeah. There's one or two. So um, <laughs> we would recommend certainly that you check out Andrew. Um, his LinkedIn profile gives you a great background, but there's some really diverse stuff in there, which is, is really interesting to me. Certainly, you know, being seconded into doing some work by MG Golf Academies, doing work with the Golf Club Managers Association, doing public speaking, being an author of a chapter, a book that's well known within the golf industry, and then all the, the coursework that you do for the students lecturing and leading the course at Buckinghamshire New University. So it's great to have you on the podcast and we'd love to just kick off with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, what would you like to change about the golf industry but you currently can't? Right, that's, um, that's, quite, a, that's quite a challenging one for me because, um, you know, I'm, I was, as you, as you guys know, in, uh, involved in the golf industry, immersed in it for a good 20 years. I've, I've been sort of on the periphery for over a decade now. You know, obviously I've kept my, my interests uh, as up to date as as possible. It's it's an important industry for me. Uh, it has a lot of meaning. What would I change about it? But I can't. I, I I guess it's the overall leadership and and the sort of coherency and the governance, perhaps the the model of governance. I know change is afoot, but it, but it's difficult to really sort of ascertain and understand exactly what that change is or the trajectory of the change. But you know, I can certainly feel that things are moving in a positive direction, albeit rather slowly. And following on from that then, a question that I wanted to kickstart the the discussion around was, who owns golf? Because it's sort of one of those questions that I don't think people have actually really thought about, but it's definitely coming to the fore as we see different people kind of jostling for positions, different associations, sort of taking the lead in certain areas. But really sort of, 
with the question who owns golf, what springs to mind when you hear that? It sounds a bit of a flippant answer in, in a sense, uh, but my, my immediate, um, it's a question that, that I ask uh, students, you know, it's one of the first questions I ask them in actual fact when I meet them. And uh, it always gets them scratching their head really, because, you know, we sort of go around, we go, go around the various uh, organizations and explore the, uh, the influences, uh, I guess, from a stakeholder perspective, you know, and, uh, and I think what crops up really is no one really owns golf in a sense. I mean, how can you own it? It is something that's deeply social and cultural, like all sports. And so, you know, it's evolved organically over 100 or 200 years um, to the situation we have now. And there are various influences. But the social cultural, I think, is still at its core. The commercial influences, you know, the economic drivers of, of recent times are probably more, um, more, more obvious. Um, but the actual you know, model of ownership is based on one that you might consider to be more of a custodianship, where uh, the closest to owning golf is, is, is the governance of it, you know, the governing bodies. So this idea of ownership, you would probably reflect on, well, uh, how does that relate to, to sort of power and influence and the, the mass, the, the members of, uh, of, of golf, as it were, the participants of golf. So England golf, is the governing body for golf in England, but its power uh, to govern the sport derives from the agreement of its members to be bound by golf's rules. So there's a sort of, there's a kind of contractual relationship there that's um, not explicit, but implied, I think. But again, it's, it's, it reflects all sports structures and it's really through contract, implied contract, that, that members are bound to the governing bodies who in turn are responsible for the rules and the procedures in in that sort of unspoken way so it's really loose isn't it from that point of view but the the point from that the point there is that um the, the governing bodies don't have a legal right as such um to to govern the score it's it's that sort of i guess more of a social cultural contract a, a sort of psychological one that, that exists that, that really makes it i guess from a from an educational point of view, a really interesting area of study to explore. But I think from an economic point of view, it gives rise to probably a lot of the issues that we that we have practically within the golf industry, maybe in terms of the governance and, and the leadership and, and a blurring and, and who does what and, uh, well, how can they do that, etc. It's, you know, from, from that point of view, I guess it's not owned, but the governing bodies, and, and I think it's a really nice word and it's where probably... Uh, really informs the word that uh, governance and um, it's their duty to 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 govern the sport um, and create a legacy uh, for the future isn't it and I guess therein lies the question regarding structures and, and history and, and and the culture of those um, governing bodies and uh, you know how forward thinking are they um, how reflective of change are they how relevant are they uh, and therefore, how relevant is 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 golf? You know, Andrew. Just the, the follow up for me on that one would be: having worked in a governing body in the UK, which you the, the listeners are aware of, there's a couple of examples we've given in the past. I certainly feel now, being outside of that, that without even trying it, you are essentially you're very passionate about what you're doing. You've got a team of passionate people who really care around about you, and you're really doing the best job you can but actually you think that the importance that you have to individual golfers in a country like Scotland, in my case, is much bigger than it actually is. 
And if, and if we were to have hypothetically been able to go out as staff members from Scottish golf and speak to every single golfer in Scotland about how much Scottish golf as an organization mattered to them individually and, and their interest in golf, we probably would have, you know, taken a bit of hit in the ego because we would have realized most people don't really care because a lot of the time they don't really understand. Likewise, with their affiliations to county and area associations, they don't really understand that they're actually paying their club affiliation fee, which is given a bit of a portion to, to a regional organization and a bit of a portion to a national organization. So I think there's definitely a, a bit of a mismatch there. And I've, I've come outside of that structure and been able to sort of reflect back but I also now read and, and listen to comments about those organisations, whether it be any of the home unions, and not because I've worked there do I want to be automatically def defensive of it, but I do feel that it's a shame because not a lot of people really understand that everyone who's in there are, you know, they're, they're not earning tons and tons of money. That's not the reason they're doing it. They love what they're doing, but the structures are such that and the resources are such that they actually can't really, they can't be a leading brand that is out there in social media looking cool and being like, they're not investing millions and millions of pounds in marketing and, and communications every year so that people know all the hard work that's going on behind the scenes. They're trying to minimize that spend because they're using members' money and those members want to see them out speaking to the clubs. So it's almost, um, for me, it's just a, it's a structure that's it's a bit of a struggle to work out how you shift from that. And it leads on to the obvious next question, which is, you know, the current structures we've got in golf, are they conducive to meeting the society demands and, and fundamentally growth of the game? Yeah, I, th I think it is a natural flow onto the next question because structure itself is, you know, is, is, is interesting in, in, in the sense that when we, when we talk about structures, we don't just, we're not just talking about, you know, physical structures, you know, buildings, etc. We're talking of something here that's intangible. So what is what is it that creates this sort of coherency, if you like, in terms of the structure? And culture is a part of that. And, um, uh, and, and how culture and values hold the structure together. And of course, within structures, you have in a social sense, you've got uh, tensions that exist as well. Um, and, and tension again is is an interesting um, uh, idea from a from from a I guess a social and a psychological perspective because tension can be a good thing because you know in terms of good governance for example you know we would expect transparency we would we would expect you know democratic uh, a voice to be heard as it were and and often there are opposing voices and there's good reason for that you know we have. Within, within an industry as big as the golf industry, there are going to be different influences and different opinions and different points of view. So things will be in tension at times, and that can be a good thing. I think it can also be, uh, I guess, a bad thing as well, in, in the sense that it can entrench certain positions, which, um, which are unhelpful. But, uh, you know, are the current structures of golf conducive to meet uh, society demands and, and growth? And, I do see some 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 real positives. I, I think that uh, it, partly it comes back to the issue of, of ownership. I think that's a you know, fundamental one because our it's it's an inherent right, isn't it, for all of us? Our right to play. If you said if you if you you know if you strip it right back, children play, adults play. It, it's it's a it's so fundamental to our existence and our health and our well-being. And when you wrap it up in sport, the difference between sport and play is, or golf in this sense, is that um, there's rules of engagement, whereas play is much more general. You know, you see your children play and, and 
I guess there are certain rules, but it, but it's quite different. It's much it's more formal in a sporting uh, sense. But there is that sense of right, you know, well, I do own part of this. I am a key stakeholder as a participant in the sport. So how do the governing bodies connect to us in in, in that sense, and and how are they meaningful? A lot of our members, Andrew, are obviously in the workforce of golf. Um, they may be members of the professional bodies. A question that's always bounded around just industry, but also within the membership is this notion of, are there too many associations and bodies in golf? What's your thoughts on that? Um, whew, I... I don't have a, I don't know is the honest answer to that. I, I think that um, it strikes me, yes, that there probably are, that there is there is a streamlining that needs to take place. Although I'm mindful, I'm respectful of, of the culture and the history. And I think one of the things that working within the industry and the business has taught me, as well as having the opportunity to work in an educational setting and reflect and think about these things, is that my preference is for organic growth not from i.e. from bottom up not top down and i think that i think a lot of the structures actually there's a lot of good uh, within the structures of golf i think there's things that are a bit dated that need to be changed there are things that are probably not so relevant today that, that might have been relevant 100 years ago and i think we need to figure that out and i think the back to the i think that's why governance is key in that sort of um, in that modern context so by governance, we need we need a sort of better streamlining streamlining of decision making. So on the one hand, yes, we need representation and a voice, but you know it doesn't need to be so complicated that we never get decisions made or decisions are made just too slowly, and and we sort of get left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Help me then, Andrew, because referring back to my lack of letters after my name, um, I did do a sports degree like you at university many years ago, and I somehow scraped through with a reasonable result. But then I then I saw that you did the actual, the real sports degree that had all the scientific stuff after it. So I, I am out of my depth academically for sure. But the word governance, just briefly, again, it's re relative to a personal experience, but it's very, very relevant to what we're talking about here, I think. It became known to me probably four or five years into a period of about eight years working with Scottish Golf, what governance really meant. And now I use it now I use it very frequently in my conversations. Um, and I certainly when I worked there in the latter years, spoke about it as if I felt like I had some sort of authority to be able to talk about it. But I see two separate things that, and I don't know what the connection is that's required between the two of them. You've got People who work and have worked in the industry for a long time will say, yeah, governance structures need to change. That might be committees at golf clubs. It might be too many associations on a national level. It might be international governance. And then you see other people, many other people who work in the industry who I would say don't work or haven't worked in, say, a national association. They don't really quite get the whole use of the governance word and like why are we talking about that it's a lot simpler than that it's you need to get a bit clearer about what you're doing you two organizations or three organizations need to get around the table and just start collaborating together because you're you're basically you're all low in resources and you're not really making the best of it because you're you're sort of fighting against each other a little bit so for me i guess long-winded description to say how do we bridge the gap then because 
people who are who work in national associations and people who work in the golf industry, they both know the same problem, but nobody seems to be able to decide well, how do we solve that problem? And I, you know, I realize there isn't a silver bullet that just magically makes it fixed. But I'm just wondering if there's something to do with even just the terminology and the word governance, because I used to be just kind of scared by it because I thought, well, that's something to do with maybe law and I've never trained in law, so I can't talk about that. And then I'm like, okay, I actually do understand what it means. But in reality, are we just overcomplicating it? Uh, Yeah, we can can do, yes. I mean, clearly, whatever we do, how much, you know, and how much um, we reflect and think about these things, we need to come up with simple answers to them. So there's a bit of a journey to be had there, but there is an element of complexity and that you need to engage with. Um, and, and, you know, there is a bit of deep diving to be had before you can resurface with clear thoughts in mind. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things, and I know it's a question we're going to, we're going to come on to in a moment of it is, is about HE and, Yes, I'm in an academic setting, but I'm very much an industry practitioner, albeit I would hope an educated one who can talk insightfully about these sorts of issues. That's important to me as a professional person to be able to do that and give an opinion. And I think from that point of view, I hope my knowledge is not academic in the sense that it, it doesn't have practical meaning. That's that My journey has been all about knowledge and understanding and, and, and applying that to practice and understanding these things and starting with practice and working backwards, mm-hmm. if you like, and using theory yep. and concepts, et cetera. And that to me what I, is what I understand uh, is, is what modern being a modern professional is about, that you're taking um, responsibility for your development. I do think it's an interesting, I, I, I had a similar journey to you, Colin, on, on, uh, on governance. At first I was, Yes, it's legal. Uh, I'm not a you know legal expert in in governance or aspects of, of you know corporate law, etc. So how can I have an opinion on this? And, and the more that I've read about it, and the more I've lived it, the more I understand the practicalities of it. And it, and it is one of those huge catch-all terms that means so many different things. I think, and and it and in that sense, it does need to be unpacked it down to its constituent parts. But the way we understand governance is through the practices and the activities at the end of the day. And I think that it's, that's how people feel governance. Uh, and I think you just touched on that, the conversations you had with individuals uh, within the golf industry when you were working for the governing body. And of course, that's where the disconnect is because you're, you're understanding and living governance in that sort of general, quite complicated way, but you get it because you're living it, but, but, but others don't. They see it in a very fragmented way. And also they see it in a way they think, well, you know, how practically, how does this affect me? Does it? Doesn't it? I, I knew this. Uh, Adam said, this is going to be a podcast that's certainly going to make you think and in the good way. So I, I'm enjoying this. Thank you, Andrew. One word that we use quite a lot, and we talked about this before we started recording, was innovation. And it's a, again, it's another word that I casually band around now. But my question, I suppose, relative to this topic is, we know there's plenty of evidence out there that limitations on things can force innovation, uh, people finding solutions. And I'm just wondering, in this context, do limitations, many of which we've experienced over the last 12 months in the industry and will continue to for a while, do limitations potentially force innovation in the industry, which in turn might also inadvertently force governance to just be addressed? Because people are in that, they're, they're moving more into a innovative mindset and thinking about, as Adam always says, 
you know, we can talk about the problems forever, but the members of, of our community and we personally want to see solutions. So how do we find ways around if there's a wall there or if there's a ceiling there, whatever way you want to look? I think it's an interesting one, innovation, um, because I don't believe necessarily what drives an innovation is a market. You know, and I'm, I'm, I've been living and working in a sector now for the best part of a decade where we've had, you know, market values imposed on us, regulation, et cetera. So, so, you know, I've experienced different sectors in that sense. And I think for me, the, the, you know, innovation, you've got to think, what are the drivers of innovation? I mean, the obvious one is technology. But I think that's also a narrow definition of, of, of innovation. I think there is such a thing as social innovation as well. And, and again, it, it, that, that really plays to the, um, the golf's potential as a, as a sport and, and how it connects and how it innovates socially and, and using technology. And as we all know, technology um, should follow what we do. It doesn't necessarily lead what we do. It's, it's how we integrate and use technology to do that. And I think modern communication, social media are, are all examples of, of how socially we're adopting and adapting technology to our own needs. I think we've seen some real, both great examples, you know, examples where it can be really positive and examples where it can be really negative on a global basis beyond golf, you know, in, in wider politics, et cetera. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because for me, the, the shift in the last three months, even since we launched Gather formally, even though the, the thinking has been going on for a number of months uh, prior to that, was moving away from just the word innovation to innovative thinking or actually just using the word innovation, but being very overt about saying we're not just about technology because that's the first thing that everyone thinks of. When our um, we, we, we did a poll, a member poll in a recent Gatherer Roulette event that we had, and it was just a snap poll and we asked people which of the following seven areas or challenges within the golf industry do you think need to be addressed with the most urgency? And the golf industry needs to be more open to innovation was the one that came out like quite far and above in everyone's sort of immediate response. So that, that definitely validated for me, yeah, this is the way that the community is thinking and we really value the the people that we have in the community and the, their experiences and the way that they think about the future of the game. So I'm really pleased to hear you kind of say, I, I loved how you phrased that there, the social innovation and the fact that that really plays into golf strength. So for me, it's how, how does the golf industry champion, celebrate and sort of embrace and encourage more innovative thinking how does it? Is that sorry? Is that a question, Colin? It's me just doing my usual, okay. and I just say a big long spiel, and then I hope that someone works out whether it's a question or not. <laughs> so I just leave it hanging out there and see yeah. if it grabs onto it. <laughs> I was quite comfortable to leave it hanging, actually. <laughs> okay, let's leave that one hanging. Adam, you got a follow-on? Yeah, no, I think we'll obviously the background and, and where I've known you, Andrew, uh, over the years, especially on the higher education link. Obviously, I've, I've come to. Buckingham University when they had the golf programs there and it's been a really interesting discussion it's been really interesting for me personally because I've, I've obviously graduated through these pathways and just seeing a lot of my peers in the industry from those days have sort of gone out and really to be honest delivered on the sort of objectives of why these higher education programs were set up with my recruitment hat on now I think we've seen a, a, the last 10 years been been very buoyant there's professionalization especially in the golf club management world and there's a really understanding and a shift from golf as a second career to golf as a serious career from from the age of 18 upwards 
one thing we're starting to see is, especially at the entry level roles at the bottom of the pyramid, a lot of um, employers are struggling to recruit in all areas of golf. And obviously linking that back, if you look at where the higher, higher education programs are at, if you look at maybe the foundation programs, uh, the diplomas of the, the professional bodies, but you also just look at junior golf and speaking to a lot of people who work in the industry, one of the key reasons they're working in the golf industry where they were those mad keen golfers doing 10 hour summer holiday sessions at the golf club and just lived and breathed it. So What's really sort of happened from your perspective in higher education, firstly, because that sort of well of talent is seeming to dry up. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And, um, you know, so because you're living it again, I'm not. So it's, I, I, I'm, I'm, unaware, I'm sort of unaware of, of that, obviously. And um, on the one hand, early on in my career in, um, in a higher education setting, I was involved with a specific golf management degree course, et cetera. So I was very much involved with, I think that's where we met probably, um, isn't it, um, Adam? So, yeah, I mean, from, from the HE perspective then, I think you've given, you know, from an industry perspective, from a HE perspective that I think I alluded to it earlier on in our uh, podcast, the, um, certainly in England, there's been this introduction of a market-based approach where effectively higher education organisations, universities and the like are in competition with each other for market share. And of course, the, you know, the, uh, the consumer is the student in, in, this, uh, in this context. And that's the language that we've had now. We've had a shift to sort of market-based language. So the student as consumer, et cetera. And, and again, there's been, I think from my point of view, both positives and, and negatives that have come out of that. I think the service is a lot better now, perhaps, that HE is offering individual students. I think, uh, has it created a competitive marketplace? Well, if you look at the price, no. Sorry, I'm, I hope I'm not going off piste. I'm just, I will come back to what you're talking about. No, because all the universities are charging the same price. Um, is the quality of the product the same? I don't know the honest answer to that. The, the, um, uh, certainly, I do know that all the people I meet within the industry are very hardworking. They have the best interests of, of students at heart. And, and they're learning and their education, you know, and, and that's really uh, rewarding to be part of. And, and it's really, uh, you know, it's, it's really kind of heartwarming to, to work with people like that who, who, you know, feel like that as well, which is good about developing, et cetera, uh, and passing on knowledge to others. I think what it, what it has done, this, this idea of a free market, it's, it's um, uh, because the student caps have been taken off. It's a bit of a free for all. What's happened is that uh, niche areas like golf, management have been withdrawn from. Uh, in other words, I think senior leadership teams within the universities are less kind of risk averse, as it were. And there's been this sort of a return or regression to just more generic courses. And uh, because uh, it's seen that, that otherwise you can, you know, you get into fragmented art areas and products that are really kind of questionable whether they break even or not. And whereas they appeared, there was a time when I first went into education that that was the case. There was a real, there was a real sort of um, uh, creativity. And you used the word innovation. I think there was a lot of cre creativity and innovation happening at that point. And there was this sense that you could work with, with industry and business very closely. And I really enjoyed that. It really played, played to my strengths, I think. Over the course of time, that shifted now and, and that, that 
it's become more formal. And as I say, the um, it, it is it is tended to be top down as opposed to bottom up. The uh, the kind of leadership that that we've we've had. Is there going to be a time when maybe golf comes back into higher education rather than being slightly put in the in the peripheral strategy of these these universities? I think so, but I do think it's up to the golf industry to to reach out to um, to educational establishments and to engage and, and have those discussions because the, the the situation has changed. It's a heavily regulated sector now, you know, it's it's political, um, etc. So and it's quite bureaucratic as well, which which is also problematic when it comes to you know business relationships really, and um, so. I think there are opportunities there. I think the onus is on the golf industry to to explore with uh, with individual providers uh, on an individual basis. Um, so I, I I am optimistic. I'm, I don't necessarily share your pessimism, although it's interesting listening to you. I'll certainly take that that away with me and, and reflect on that with my peers, maybe. Yeah. I think what's interesting is because of the price points have obviously gone right up to what you would pay for a traditional degree, shall we say, that then has sort of created this dynamic where you look at the value for money, you look at the investment you're going to make over the next three years and what's the payback in real terms in a career in golf. And that's where it feels like the model is slightly broken. I was speaking to a a leader in the golf industry, shall we say, that runs a very successful business. His son was looking at going into club management and he said, well, you can go to university or he obviously had some good connections, said you can go around the world, you can intern, do six months stints over three years. After that three-year period, you're going to come out with not just technical knowledge, not just great contacts throughout the industry, but you're also going to come out with some real good cultural experiences and grow as a, an individual. And fundamentally, you might even come out with some money in your pocket um, rather than this this large amount of debt. And I think that's the sort of crux of it at the moment, it feels, that people looking to go into into golf, the investment level is just too high at this stage. Yeah, I mean, one of the measures that comes to mind, uh, Adam, that uh, I think this is a, a probably a direct answer to, to the question you posed, is that the, the, you know, what the government have done, if you, if you like, one of the measures is, is on graduate jobs. And um, a lot of the jobs in the golf sector industry are not considered graduate jobs. So, and, and the funding model is, is based on that, you know, and also the way that the performance measures that are imposed on, on universities, you know, there are certain performance measures that need to be met. So um, a lot of the jobs in, in the golf industry are just not deemed as graduate jobs. And, and that's a problem for, I think, universities. And is there a hybrid solution? Is there something where there is a level of higher education, but it's not? at that full-blown bachelor's degree level? Yeah, I think, I mean, there is, I think I think there is some innovation, as I said, broadly in the market. I said not on a price basis, you know, in, in terms of, but I think there is some diversity that's that's occurring, beginning to occur within the market. You know, so the some universities do research, some do the more teaching-oriented, and I think the, the more teaching-oriented ones are, where the opportunities will, will lie, really, because um, in, if, they will in the research ones for different reasons. But I think what you're talking about is um, perhaps more akin to training uh, and skills and uh, as opposed to that, broad, you know, professional development type uh, thinking, as opposed to the broader education in, in that liberal 
sense that uh, that we understand it as well. And I think both have a part to play. I think the it was an interesting one. The listening to you uh, give that example. I mean, and, and I don't know the answer to it. If you if you take accounting as a profession, for example, you know you'll know that um, there are some of the big accounting players are, are offering their own kind of uh, development uh, universities, as, as it were. The same in in engineering, and so so the private sector is beginning to compete. And and after all, why shouldn't it? The uh, we live in a world because of technology where knowledge is accessible. I don't think it's the accessibility of knowledge that's the issue, really. It's it's how do you package that? How do you make it meaningful to individuals? How do you improve decision-making, really, which is what it's about? So ultimately, yes, we all need to work. We need to, we need to earn a living. But we know that's not an end in itself. That's not going to give us uh, contentment and happiness, ultimately. And that's where education comes in. So yes, we can be trained in that narrow sense and, and have the skills. But as human beings, we need to be... Uh, educated as well so we can deal you know uh, with some of the issues that we've been talking about today I think you know I, I'm sort of in, I've got a foot in both camps really I, I think both is, is is important this is uh, really really fascinating I've been sitting and listening to the last sort of five ten minutes because this was all exactly where my mind was going to, and hopefully the listeners, when they're listening back to this, the people that we have who are some of the most sort of well-respected leaders within the golf industry that are members of Gather have contributed to some of our pieces, are messaging us personally and saying, you know, here's what we're giving us some feedback and so on. They are all, the, the common thread that runs through them um, is that they, they're all constant learners, so kind of a learner's mindset. And I certainly had good experience. We probably all have this too, people that will know in the golf industry. But I remember a, a coach that I used to work with in a previous role, a golf coach. And he he said, you know, he got to where he was because he just decided to put aside a little pot of money every year, not a vast amount. And he just said, there's some great coaches over in America. And each year I'm going to go back in January when I'm a bit quieter. You probably know how bad the weather is in Scotland then. And he says, so I just go over there and I just reach out to them in advance. And, and this was way before, you know, social media and everything like that and he would just say can I can I just come and sit in the back of the range and watch you for a week now very few people said no to him but the learning in that was just incredible so he just instilled a or he just started a habit of that kind of ongoing learning and in that wider world in the wider world there's a lot of examples that you know you hear about of the entrepreneurial mindset and all the, the media around entrepreneurs but just finding coming back to that finding solutions finding the way around things and not always you know especially in america not having to go into a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt in order to try and continually learn and get connected with the right kind of people and someone i reference quite often because I, I really like and follow a lot of his stuff is tim ferris and one of the things he spoke about a number of years ago and wrote it in his original book before our work week was how he built his own mba it was a real what he called it, his own real world mba and he kind of details it in a nice short chapter, but basically said, look, I want to learn all of these things and I'm prepared to invest this much money in it. So, but most of it was actually connecting with certain people, traveling and making the effort to meet them. It was nothing to do with actual sort of formal education, as we might say. And I think um, maybe just from a sort of a selfish perspective, do you think that we're kind of on the right track with Gather? Because what we've attempted to do is give some of those people who are in the golf industry, maybe earlier in their career, just that opportunity to see that they can connect with some of the, the industry's leaders. They can actually really enhance 
and or create new relationships with some of these people in ways that they maybe couldn't do before and just sort of encourage them yeah okay you, you might not have gone through this pj degree or this cma course yet or a university degree but there's these little innovative ideas of new companies new people doing things just take some spirit from that enhance your relationships with the right people be part of a bigger community and just sort of lift yourself up that way do you think we're kind of on the right track Absolutely, yeah. I think we're uh, look. We're all we're all equals here, and in, in, in the learning game, we, we can all continually learn from one another. Formal education or formal uh, means are one way, but um, a big part of, of learning for all of us is is that sort of informal way and, and learning through one another, and and that's perhaps the sort of deeper, more meaningful way as well, because um, it does create those communities, those shared communities. And I think what's been really, what's really positive about Gather, if, if I may say, is that it is a platform to explore different ideas and, and where people can explore their ideas without being judged in a, in a, in a negative way. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an area, a space where, where people can uh, engage with one another in, in a respectful manner and, and a manner that, um, you know, is considerate. It's considerate we consider each other's as views. And, and we talk talk about them and, and, and think them through and, and to some sort of logical conclusion. And, and if need me, we agree to disagree. You know, that's absolutely fine. But yeah, I, I think life is, a, is about learning from, from one another as well. It, it's practical at the end of the day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, Andrew, this is uh, you know, just exactly to that point, having you on today as someone, that, our first guest on a piece of content who's able to sort of really bridge that gap with your experiences between the, the academic look at things or the, just the sort of more almost more of a philosophical look at this stuff as you've done in this conversation and the you know speaking very credibly from your golf industry experiences it's been fantastic for me the final thing really is just to ask you is there any sort of final words of advice or or questions you you want to leave the audience with you know something for them to ponder or any sources of information you think that might be helpful for people to have a look at yeah, we we all have a part to play in in uh, in the golf industry. Every single one of us, part of it. We we are all stakeholders, and um, so just reflect on what you can do to make golf uh, a better place for 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 each other and for for all of us as a as a wider community. Here, here, yeah, very happy to to hear those final words, Andrew. We really appreciate your time and the the prep that you put into this, the thinking that went into this. As usual, I always say this now after every episode. The cogs are really turning in my head. I probably need to go and decompress after this. And maybe maybe over the next week when I'm out walking one day, suddenly a penny will drop and I'll go, ah, the, the Buddha you has... see the light. The, the Buddha has spoken and it's finally made its way through all the gunk in my head and now it makes some sense. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure you've helped Adam and I in our thinking about what we try and do for this community as much as hopefully you've helped the people that are listening at home. So really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much. Play. As always, Andrew, fascinating stuff. And we'll look to see how we can, can, can further some of these conversations and, and get a, uh, a group discussion going because some of these sort of strands need to be picked up on. And, and as you said, it'd be great to get some different thoughts and, and create that safe space where we can really interrogate and, and create some solutions to, to some of these challenges that we face.